I feel most uh, alive in music and in general when I'm a little bit sad or something in that I think sad doesn't really capture it, but nostalgia has to do with that definitely. This is Brian Paris with Sounds of Berkeley. When you talk to Israeli musician Tali Rubinstein about the recorder, her primary instrument, you can get the impression she's had to give a few explanations. That impulse for justification is evident in the first line of her official bio, which states, Just like most kids, Tali began playing the recorder in second grade. Unlike most, she never stopped. But just look at her career, and the question of justification is moot. Since completing her Berkeley degree in 2014, she's toured with Paco de Lucia's legendary flamenco band, performed at Carnegie Hall, and in 2018, her name appeared on President Barack Obama's list of favorite songs of the year, in a collaboration with songwriter and fellow alumna Tonina and Javier Limon, artistic director of the Berkeley Mediterranean Music Institute. Limon also produced Tali's new album, Memoir, her first outing as a singer-songwriter, which will be released later this year on Limon's label, Casa Limon. In this episode, she talks about the making of Memoir, translating her lyrics from her native Hebrew into English, and how the act of translation can be a metaphor for making music itself. Well, Tali Rubenstein, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. I'm interested. What drew you to the recorder? We can start there. Um, Yeah, I'm always asked what drew me to the recorder, actually. Um, Not to say it's not an original question. Oh, no. I I figured you get this all the time. Um, But for me, the more interesting question is uh, why did I not quit? Because so many people, almost everyone I speak to was somehow drawn to the recorder or forced to the recorder (laughs) at an early age. And so I don't really remember choosing it, but I do remember that I never stopped. And I, whenever that question arose, if I should continue or not, I was never like courageous enough to, to leave it for a long time. Um, And I think the answer to that is probably multi-layered. Um, First of all, I it didn't occur to me, <laughs> which is the biggest reason of all, until much, much, much later on when I was making bigger decisions about life, uh, when I was more like teenager, adult. Um, by then, I was very established on the recorder. And um, the other thing is I had great teachers that guided me very, very well and with a lot of um, passion throughout that process. And they, I guess they helped me love this instrument. And my parents, I guess, were very, very supportive. No one ever, like, thought it's a weird thing to do around me. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it suggests, you know, why didn't you leave it behind or something like that. I think maybe a more positive way to spin that is, well, what continues to inspire you about it? I mean, need only to look at your Instagram to notice that, like, you have a what's a dizzying array of different kinds of recorders. So it's, and, and you do so many different styles of music that, you're clearly not getting bored on, on on sticking to the instrument. So what is it that still inspires you? Um, well, I don't get bored talking either, you know. <laughs> like sometimes momentarily, many times maybe. But it's not to me a thing that is something that if it's boring, then you should stop because because music is not boring. You know, again, some music is, but in general, it's something I love. And this is for me, the most like natural way to express myself or to try out things in music. That's really interesting. And it connects 
kind of directly to this idea. So you're you're working on a new album that theoretically should be out this year at some point, correct? <laughs> yes. yes. Um, and that showcases a shift from you as instrumentalist primarily to singer-songwriter. So in that sense, you have this sort of creative bond with the recorder, as you just said, and kind of, um, you know, that's how you express yourself um, musically the best. And yet here you are in this new phase too, kind of embracing this side of your musicality. So what what led you to take that um, that leap uh, and kind of take songwriting seriously? I think, well, maybe I wanted to limit myself. It could be. Um, I didn't like really plan the whole thing. Okay, what's the best way to do this? Um, but gradually I noticed that it's uh, easier for me to compose a song than to compose um, like an instrumental tune. Easier, not that it's faster at all. It just makes more sense at the end. And I know like where I'm going with it, even if it changes a lot, it just like feels very right and very natural to me, that process. And with instrumentals, sometimes I feel, what am I really saying with this? Am I like faking it? Am I just doing what I'm supposed to do? Like I was less connected to the process in some of my tunes. Um, and singing is a very exciting challenge for me. Yeah, so it's in that sense, you've got this creative output with the, with the recorder, but in terms of maybe that inspiration level or something when you're going to that well to draw on the creativity, that songwriting feels like a, a maybe an easier connection to make, I think, in the process. Exactly. Yeah, also when I was writing only or mostly instrumental tunes, many times I wrote, I mean, I almost never composed with a recorder. So even then I would write something with a piano and kind of hum to myself the melody, and then turns out it's like in B-flat minor. And then I just had to play it in B-flat minor, which is a very bad key for the recorder. So I just dealt with it that normally didn't like really showcase like everything you can do with a recorder. It's like, so it clashed from the beginning a little bit, these things. Hmm. So they were both there, though, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you and I have, have talked before, too, about how you're drawn to sad, but also somehow, you know, maybe not explicitly uplifting music, you know, something that so that pulls on the heartstrings a little bit and that that was something that you were drawn to with this, uh, the, with this record and these tunes. Um, what is it about that, that sort of drew you to that style and kind of that aesthetic? Um, I think that's a music I listened to a lot growing up. Um, um, I'm from Israel and a lot of the music, at least when I was growing up, was very sad. And I think I told you that it's really known that whenever there is like a Memorial Day, the music on the radio is the best. So everyone listens. Just like, not like they want to be sad, but just it's the best music, like uh, objectively, I think. Um and I don't know, in my head, I'm drawing a lot of connections to my background as a classical musician and um, my love for Bach, for example. The music is not always like just like easy listening, but it's very deep and very touching. And I always love to play the most, the pieces that I felt are very emotional. Yeah. And I, I wonder, so beyond classical too, I mean, you, you have a root in that and that definitely comes from it. And, and I think maybe a better word, I, sometimes sad music can get 
sort of pigeonholed as like one thing and it may be like just emotionally complicated or complex, you know, something that's not just trying to be one thing or another, that it's supposed to be dynamic and interesting. So I, I don't want to sound too reductive, but what other artists or, or forms of music um, do you find that vein that helps kind of inspire your, your writing for this album? Um, so I'm definitely, insp- I mean, I, I'm kind of, I wish I had more like vast inspirations, but I'm really kind of obsessive about Israeli music. <laughs> And a few of the composers, especially, like Mati Kaspi and Yoni Rechter. And I also love Stevie Wonder, which is kind of weird um, because it's very different. But um, it's hard for me to really pinpoint why some artists would really get into my heart and why another wouldn't. Um, But a lot of the times I'm really thinking about these songs that I used to hear. And I want to bring my own take of it. I'm not trying to change it. I'm just in that zone when I'm writing. Yeah. So a, a relationship to the past, it seems like, or a nostalgia in some ways, which, yeah, you know, nost- nostalgia is at its root a, a sort of sadness or a longing for the past, you know, things that have that have gone by that are no longer around. Um. Yeah, definitely. I mean... I feel most uh, alive in music and in general when I'm a little bit sad or something in that. I think sad doesn't really capture it, but nostalgia has to do with that, definitely. Um, Remembering things that are gone or times that are gone and bringing them all to the present and being in a kind of a space that there's no time that you kind of detach from right now. Um... And I could be in the state for hours and hours. It's hard to get into that state, but I love it. And it's a very sweet sadness. And these are the kind of songs that I like the most that put me in that state. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the songs that have come out of those, <laughs> those sweet sadness states. <laughs> um, you've you've brought some, some lyric sheets um, today. For a couple of songs off your record, mm-hmm. uh, memoir is if I'm pronounced. I don't speak French, but I. <laughs> Me neither. It's <laughs> okay. Um, so we have those, and I think what's really interesting about this is that you compose in your native language, which makes sense in Hebrew. Uh, but and the songs that the, uh, the mixes I've heard are, are in Hebrew as well. Are there going to be English versions planned, or are you translating them more for kind of your own sake in terms of sharing the music? Um, yeah, I tried at a certain point when I was starting working to work on this album to translate everything to English to so it fits here, but it just didn't really work. And I ended up in some of the songs, I translated the chorus and then it just stayed a part of the song. I never went back. So there's no like multiple versions of any song. And the ones that are in Hebrew, they stay in Hebrew. But uh, when I perform, I really miss that element of, I mean, I hope that people get what somehow what I'm singing about without knowing the lyrics, but I know there's something missing. So that's what it's for. And I started handing out (laughs) the translations in my concerts and it frees me also from explaining. So I want to do all the thinking beforehand and then just have the final uh, version and not... When you start explaining, it kind of loses the poetry. 
Yeah, and so the the two songs we have here are Adama and In Between the Cracks, um, which, you know, when I listen to them, the the versions that you sent me, obviously I don't speak Hebrew, but Adama feels like a, the more dirge, like it's, it's a, a pretty simple arrangement or simple in terms of like minimal instrumentation. Um, whereas In Between the Cracks kind of explodes, you know, it builds to more of a crescendo and that sort of thing. And it has kind of more going on in that sense. And then looking over the the lyrics and the versions, at least the translations on my end, um, I can see that that, that sort of fits. Um, and so I wonder, how did you approach that translation process? Uh, well, first I want to mention that um, <laughs> well, I couldn't do it alone. So I asked my good, good friend, Michal Weiner, to help me in this process. And she is, uh, she speaks Hebrew and English at the same level, the same high level. <laughs> so, and also she knows me well, which is a unique combination. Um, so I really wanted to keep uh, the original intention, but a lot of the intention is in the phrasing and the order of the words. And a lot of the, the order of the words is wrong in English. So I don't, sometimes I, I it feels bad to change it, even though I know it's wrong. But some things you just can't do because it seems like you don't know what you're doing. Other things we wanted to purposely leave in somehow similar, even if it's kind of bizarre. Because also in Hebrew, I use some weird placements of words and things from different contexts. We definitely gained a ton of understanding. I felt like the sessions were like half therapy sessions. It was very interesting. We got into like philosophical discussions, a lot of like funny moments because the translations, when you look for a word that is not the same, but captures the same idea, it just ends up with very strange (laughs) combinations. Is Is there an example of of the one of those moments that spawned either like whether it was kind of a funny or interesting thing or one of the things that spawned a kind of philosophical conversation or or that half therapeutic thing yeah maybe i can mention uh there's a part that i say um uh, she is neeteket which i don't know how to say that in english but apparently when i tried to think what does it mean i didn't even know what it means in hebrew i just it gave me the feeling of like your breath is stopping and you kind of parallel it for a second. Um, but then I looked it up because I'm thinking in Hebrew you say um, the breath is <laughs> and then I didn't know what exactly happens with the breath. I, didn't, I just knew what it means, the expression. So in my song I say she is that thing that happens to your breath. Um, and I looked it up and it says in uh, the translator, it's relocated. And it just doesn't get that feeling, um, that association, that word that you relate in Hebrew to breath. And it's so powerful, that word, to me, I think. Um, so we ended up with, it's like a kind of a compromise because it's kind of, I tried to say maybe, um, she is taken away, like a breath, is, take the breath away or something like that, but it just doesn't work. It just sounds like somebody is taking her somewhere. So we ended up with she is breathless, which is just literally what I'm saying, a bit less of um, using two different f- f- like word fields. 
but just literally what it is. It was the best solution. And, and another time, <laughs> there was uh, somehow we were trying to find um, a state that your soul is like neither here nor there or something like that in between. And we were looking just for synonyms. A lot of the time we were just Googling and looking for what's what feels the best out of the options. And one of them was homeless. So it came out, my soul is homeless. <laughs> just probably not the best phrasing. Um, but yeah. Where did that one lead, that, that particular line? My soul hovers, exactly, yeah. I think it's a really good example. And then getting somewhere from, from that to gliding, which is in version one, my soul is gliding, to... Your final English translation, My Soul Hovers. Mm-hmm, which is a word I didn't know, by the way. Yeah. So now I know. Yes, and I learned you know some that. words also. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yep. But even thinking, you know, for me as, as a native English speaker, thinking about the difference between gliding and hovers, I mean, the, the, the breath is different there and the connotations are different and the sound is, which I think that's sort of what, when you were talking about the word for breathless or at least that experience that you sort of knew intuitively... Um, and had to look up even in, in your own native tongue. I mean, I can relate to that. And I know even as a writer, the act of translation from the brain to the page can sometimes feel like you're missing something. And I, So I, I love the idea that it's not just about like, let's take vocab and, and, and use a translator, whether that's a person or a, a program, that it's coming from that more poetic sensibility. Yeah. And we also were definitely thinking a lot about the sound a lot like even though we're not trying to stick to <laughs> to the same like um, rhythm or something like that we we're not trying to replace the original version so it's open in a way but still we want it to flow in itself and we were trying not to like if i wrote a short sentence we wouldn't write like a 10 <laughs> like word sentence like to try to be um yeah f- um how do you say like faithful to the original version in other senses, not only the meaning. Right. It comes down to a gut sense. So even, right. So even though the process might be in some way scientific, it ends up uh, more of a, again, trusting the sort of artistic impulse. Yeah. You know, the musician rather than the, than the speaker in Mm -hmm. that way. Um, Which you talked about again in some of your, your notes that you even admit that you'll never reach the right translation. Um, and that that's something that you're feeling even in the mixing process um, for the recordings, too. I wonder if that's something you could talk a little bit about, that sort of your relationship to the final product. Yeah, well, it's an idea that I feel I've I've been experiencing a lot, but also hearing and reading about from other artists um, in many fields that I think it's common for many people to feel it's very confusing this process because it doesn't work or not work a hundred percent because it depends on the day, the mood, and etc. Everything, the context. Um, so, 
yeah, because it's very subjective and not only to every person it's different, but to the same person it's different. And I can many times hold many, many, many op- good options at once and it's hard to make decisions. So in a way, it's, it's um, very liberating to <laughs> understand, okay, like after a certain amount of work you put into it, you make a decision and you just like stop because... That's it, like you did your dues you're you're so familiar with it and with everything it could mean, and right now, this is what it means. That's it for now, <laughs> so being happy with that limitation, I guess, and sort of just saying this is representative of the creative time that I spent on yeah. it and sort of letting it right. exist after that, yeah. Yeah, and speaking of of that process, I wanted to talk a little bit about the album, which interestingly, when I looked up um memoir then the name of the album uh, again I'm probably butchering the pronunciation but it comes from the French and right on the Wikipedia page it says does not have a direct translation to English <laughs> so even that word sort of connects to it and something that I thought was really interesting was the, the way that at least Wikipedia that that wise sage um, defines it as sort of reflects the writer's own experiences and memories which again sort of a flat vague thing but you And what we're talking about, it seems really related, both in the, your musical lineage and sort of what you're trying to channel, um, but also this process of translation of, of knowing there's no perfect way to say it, but maybe that's what makes it interesting. So what are some of the themes that bind uh, the album together? We can maybe start there. There is a love, a lot of love, <laughs> a love, <laughs> a lot of love in the album um, and a lot of... Um, anxiety um, it's a reoccurring uh, themes in the album um, and I think that's a, a lot of the times in my life when I'm more reflective that's kind of my experience in between like this anxiety of being alone um, kind of existential anxiety that's always there but you don't think about it all the time. Uh, versus being loved and then it kind of vanishes and it's okay everything is fine and you're protected and so a lot of it is relationships with my parents but not specific uh, <laughs> uh, stories about it just how I feel about it um, or with um, partners but very much um, like a dissection of my emotion throughout many of uh, very dramatic experiences that I had probably within the last year 10 years at least <laughs> um, and I guess all my struggles yeah they're pretty much there without without being whiny about it just like putting it out there that's great and and sort of do we do we have a hope for a release date or are we are we asking too much um, let's decide now what do you want it to be <laughs> yes you heard it here first yeah <laughs> Fall uh, 2020. Excellent. Great. Is that uh, accurate enough? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's fine with mm-hmm. me. So thank you for your time and best of luck with the album. And uh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for talking with me and for listening. Adama is fish for I El Teo Thank you.
To learn more about Tolly and to keep an eye on the release of her new album, visit tollyrubenstein.com. That's T-A-L-I-R-U-B-I-N-S-T-E-I-N.com. This episode was recorded by Tony Brown in partnership with The Burn and engineered by Brandon Bachajan. Our theme music is by Sleeping Lion. I'm Brian Paris, and this is Sounds of Berkeley.